0: For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, let's go to the Lord and ask his guidance and direction on our time in his word. Father, you have revealed yourself to us in these 66 books of the Bible and in your sovereignty you have uh, overseen the preservation, the protection of these particular uh, works that they might be part of the uh, canon of scripture from both the old and new testament in order to uh, give guidance and direction to our thinking. That what is revealed to us in your word has absolute, final, and ultimate authority because it reflects the creation as it is. It informs us as to the nature of reality. And though we find many things there that are difficult for us to do, we know that in the power of God, the Holy Spirit, that we are able to do these things. And through his power, uh, he will use these things to produce spiritual growth in our lives. Now, Father, as we continue our study this morning on the relationship of the believer to the authority of human government, civil government, we pray that you would guide and direct our thinking, our study of your word, and that God the Holy Spirit would make clear to us how we need to apply these things in our own lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're actually in a study in 1 Kings, though this morning we're going to be in Romans chapter 13. In First Kings, just so you know that we have not completely lost what's going on in First Kings, in the 18th chapter, there's an episode where uh, Obadiah, who is the uh, number two or three man in the kingdom under the evil and wicked king Ahab and his wife Jezebel, is hiding uh, prophets. He's hidden 100 prophets, 50 to a cave. That's a fairly crowded cave in order to save their lives because under the administration of the evil uh, king Ahab and the hostility that his wife Jezebel has towards anyone who is a believer in the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, they're virtually these prophets are virtually under a death sentence. So, uh they have been hidden to protect their lives and to uh, save their lives. That raises a question, a question that many people have asked down through the centuries. What exactly is the role of the believer toward government, toward civil government, when that government has, is operating on uh, evil principles or that government is uh, operating in a manner that is contrary to God's word? What is the role and responsibility of the believer in terms of living uh, under an unjust, an unrighteous, or an evil authority? And we can apply that to any sphere of authority that we have in life. We all operate in different spheres of authority, and sometimes we operate in different spheres of authority at the same time. As members of a family, we're under the authority of a father. In a marriage, uh, wives are under the authority of the husband. If you're in the classroom, then you're under the authority of a teacher. If you're in the military, you are under the authority of an officer, a non-commissioned officer or a commissioned officer. If you are uh, playing sports, then you're under the authority of a coach. We can't escape authority. And the authority that we all are under is a, the authority of government of the nation in which we live. And there are times throughout history when those governments make uh, foolish decisions, times when they make sinful or evil decisions, and there are times when governments operating on tyranny uh, demand that their citizens do things that are contrary to the word of God. And so we are believers down through the ages have often been forced to deal with this question in a very uh, real and personal way. Now, what we have done so far in our study just to remind you since I've been uh, on vacation for the last couple of weeks is that we looked at the Old Testament in terms of how different believers throughout the Old Testament handled situations where, where governing authorities mandated that they do something that was contrary to what God had specifically and directly commanded, either a positive command or a or a prohibition. We looked at the Egyptian midwives who were commanded by Pharaoh to take the life of any uh, any child, a male child that was born. We looked at David as he had been anointed by God to be the king of Israel, and yet God still had Saul on the throne. And for probably another 10 or 12 years, David was in a position of waiting for God to remove Saul. And during that time, Saul was clearly operating outside of the law. He was in violation of the Mosaic law, which was the Constitution of the land, and I think this is a very important and significant example, because here you have uh, a God-anointed king who has now perverted the constitution, as it were, of uh, of the kingdom of Israel. And not only is he operating outside the bounds of law, but he is also uh, involved in criminality himself, as he has sent uh, his henchmen. Uh, led by Doeg the Edomite to slaughter the priests at Nob because they had uh, aided David in his escape, and then Saul himself had personally tried to kill David on several occasions. Now, I think that's important because within our tradition, within our history as uh, conservative evangelicals, there, and as Americans, there is a stream of thought that goes really back to the period of the English, uh, English Stuart monarchy and the struggles between the Puritan Parliament and, uh, James the First of England, Charles the First, and there were many writings at that time, and one of the most, uh, well-known, one of the most significant, was written by a Scottish Presbyterian theologian and pastor by the name of Samuel Rutherford, and he wrote a treatise called Lex Rex, or The Law is King. And the thrust of their thinking was, and this is what influenced English civil law as well as the thinking of the American colonists during the time of the uh, war for independence from from Britain was that the law is king and the king is not in and of himself the law. The king does not manifest uh, the law. The king's word and opinion is not the law. He actually serves under the law. The law is the king. And so uh, one way of thinking about these things was that when the king or the government, began to operate in an illegitimate manner that was uh, against the law of the land, then that gave uh, those under them a right of rebellion. Uh, now, there are different facets that come into play in the American War for Independence that uh, shade this uh, a little differently because of the nature of the colonial uh, situation in, a, in a, between America and England, but when you look at the situation with Saul Saul is operating outside of the law and he is made himself the the ultimate law in Israel and yet David when he gets the opportunity to uh assassinate Saul, gets the opportunity to take him out. When Saul goes into a cave in order to relieve himself, David is hiding there in the shadows. Saul doesn't know he's there, and David reaches out, and just to show he was there, he just takes his knife and cuts off the end of Saul's robe. Afterward, David felt guilty that he had even lifted his hand in such a minor way against the king, because David understood how significant authority is in the world that God created, in the universe that God created, and to even disrespect authority in such a uh, what seemingly insignificant manner was an egregious thing in his thinking. And that is something that we have to pay a lot of attention to when looking at this whole matter of the relationship of the believer uh, to government. Then we went on to look at three examples from Daniel, the example in Daniel chapter 1 of these uh, young men who were being required to uh, eat of the diet, the Babylonian diet, and partake of the uh, the indoctrination uh, curriculum that they had for them and how they handled that in wisdom, uh, going to the authorities and saying, well, let's try another way and see if that works out better for us in the diet. They picked their battles. They weren't going to uh, die on every hill. They recognized there are some things that are significant, some things that are not as significant, and you can't um, use the same amount of energy to fight every single battle, battle or you just won't survive for very long. Then uh, at the conclusion of that, which was the last lesson, we came into the New Testament, and I briefly looked at Acts chapter 4, where the, there's a conflict between Peter and John and the disciples, and the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin had ordered them to stop preaching the gospel about Jesus Christ, stop telling the people that Jesus was the Messiah, that he had uh, died on the cross for their sins, that he had been raised from the dead, and that by believing in him they could have eternal life. That is the gospel. And the Sanhedrin said, stop teaching this. And the next day, the disciples are back out in the temple preaching, proclaiming the gospel. And when the Sanhedrin confronted them, they said, well, we have to obey God Rather than men, and that's the principle in a nutshell. That when the any authority, parent, husband, teacher, uh, coach, military tells us, orders us to do something that is 180 degrees contrary to what God has said to do, then we have the right of saying, "No, I'm not going to do that." But what we see in all of these examples is that there's not an insurrection, there's not a revolt, there's no rebellion. There is simply the refusal to do that which God uh, has pro- prohibited. And so that's where we are at this point. Now, all of these passages we've looked at up to this point are all historical examples. In none of those passages do we have... Uh, direct commands, direct mandates, direct teaching from the word on these situations. We just have examples. Now that's important to understand because we have to be careful how we interpret historical circumstances, historical, uh, situations and narrative literature in the scripture. One of the problems that has plagued the tw- church in the 20th century has been the problem of the Pentecostal charismatic, uh, movement that began at the, be- in 1900, because they looked at the events of Acts and assumed that that was normative. You can't take narrative literature—that is, descriptions of what happened—and extrapolate from that mandates. You have to have a framework set up by specific uh, declarative passages in Scripture that teach the uh, the principles. And so we have two key passages in the New Testament: First Peter. Chapter two and Romans chapter thirteen. We'll begin in Romans uh, chapter thirteen, where Paul is going to describe the and give principles for the believer's relationship to governing authorities. But before we get into it, I need to give you a little review on the uh, significance and the importance of civil government. I've got about four. Four points of review, three points of review. First of all, civil government is first instituted by God in the Noahic covenant in Genesis 9-6 when God ordained the sword for capital punishment in terms of capital crime, specifically murder in Genesis chapter 9-5 and Genesis uh, 9-6. where we read, Surely I will require your lifeblood. From every beast I will require it. And from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. And then here's the key principle. Whoever sheds man's blood by man, that's the delegation of authority. God's not going to step in and punish the criminal. It is delegated. The responsibility is delegated to man by man his blood. Shall be shed for in the image of God He made man. Now, a couple of things that we ought to observe here. First of all, the terminology shedding of blood" is an idiom for uh, committing murder. It doesn't restrict it to a kind of murder where blood is literally shed. It is simply an idiom for a, a violent or uh, homicidal death. Second thing we should note is that there's no mention of the word government here. Some people may say, well, how do you get government out of this? Well, if you're going to apply the principle, then you have to think about this a little bit and say, okay, if we're now responsible for taking the life of somebody who commits this kind of an act, how do we go about adjudicating that uh, that decision? How do we decide if he's truly guilty? How do we decide if it was an accident or it was intentional? Uh, who has, who is going to be given the authority within a society in order to carry out this punishment? And what sorts, uh, what kinds of redress might there be in the case of somebody who is unjustly, uh, condemned? So all of those things have to be taken into account and much more if we're going to apply this particular principle. And so what is, uh, what is encased in this is the, whole structure, governing structure within human society in order to carry out the application of this law and to uh, provide for a just application of the law. Now, many people today have problems with capital punishment and they usually operate on a couple of false assumptions. One false assumption is that a capital punishment is designed to prevent crime. It may have a preventative Uh, application, but that is not why God said that there should be capital punishment. The reason that capital punishment uh, is invoked by God is because, in the case of murder, someone has degenerated so much in in their soul that they no longer have respect for other human beings who are in the image of God, and since another human being is in God's image, the uh taking of that life through homicide is ultimately an act of blasphemy against uh, God because that individual is in the image of God so it doesn't have anything to do uh with uh prevention of crime so don't get distracted if you're talking to somebody about capital punishment in terms of various statistics in that way second thing that people uh get confused about is they think well we make mistakes and this is a pretty serious decision to take somebody's life in punishment. So uh, we, we need to uh, probably not do this because we've got a lot of people on death row who uh, could have been unjustly condemned. Well, don't you think God in his omniscience recognized that down through the course of time there would be uh, any number of people who would be unjustly condemned? and victims of uh, capital punishment and the death penalty, and that nevertheless he still delegated that authority and mandated that action on the part of mankind. In fact, he used that to provide salvation. I mean, I don't understand how any Christian can be against the death penalty. If you're against the death penalty, then you're against your own salvation. You ever think about it that way? If there wasn't a death penalty... We wouldn't have a Savior. We wouldn't have a salvation. Jesus Christ died on the cross as a result of the application of the death penalty, which was, in principle, authorized, authorized by God. And so the authorization of the death penalty is one of the most extreme forms of punishment, one of the most serious things that human beings can be involved in, necessarily implies all of the lesser forms of adjudication, criminality, uh, in the entire court system. So civil government is first instituted by God uh, at the time of the Noahic Covenant. Prior to this, you didn't have a government of this kind. There was the handling of cert- situations within the family and within uh, the patriarchy. Now, the second principle is to recognize that Uh, Civil government is part of what we call the divine institutions, the divine institutions. And the divine institutions are established by God. Now, let me put on the screen here a definition of divine institution for you. The term divine institution has been used by Christians to speak of these absolute social structures that were established by God and embedded within the social makeup of human beings. So that in order for human beings to realize their full potential as image bearers, these institutions must be uh, followed. Therefore, the entire human race, therefore believers and unbelievers alike. And when they are followed, there can be a, a measure of success and prosperity When they are violated, then that society will eventually erode and collapse uh, from the inside. In contrast, modern paganism and paganism throughout history has viewed these as simply byproducts of man's psychosocial evolution. They're viewed as cultural conventions that God didn't ordain and establish Marriage, marriage is just something that people found to have a pragmatic value, and so it was developed or evolved along the way. Government's the same thing; they would see that God did not establish government. It's just something a convention that man developed. But we have to understand there's a difference between a an institution, as we're using the word, and a convention uh human conventions have to do with things that may differ from culture to culture country to country uh language group to language group because they are developed by different different peoples in order to um, carry out what the the basic structures of their society uh we have a judicial system in the United States there's a judicial system in Britain that's a little different those are conventions but behind that judicial system, there is a an absolute which is the institution that 's established by God, the institution of human government. If you ever watch any of these uh, uh, murder uh, mystery detective shows that are produced in Britain, you always see the judges with their little white powdered wigs that 's a convention you don 't see that in the united states that's a that's a difference but what lies behind the entire process of the um, uh, judicial uh, process of law has to do with has to do with this divine institution. Now there are five divine institutions, and three of them were established prior to the fall. And that's important to understand because they don't have to do with sin. They're not generated because of sin. They weren't designed by God in order to somehow control sin, because they were there in perfect environment. And so the first three divine institutions are designed for man's prosperity, for his blessing, for his growth. And the first one is individual responsibility. And each person is accountable to God for how he lives his life in terms of the resources that God has given him. The second divine institution is marriage. Marriage is to be between one man and one woman. There's a lot of discussion over the last uh, 10 or 15 years as the uh, uh, homosexual movement has put pressure on the, uh, on our culture to accept same-sex marriage. And unfortunately, there are a lot of conservatives and a lot of Christians who don't understand what the ultimate issues are, and they come across as very hostile, uh, very uh, hateful, very antagonistic, and make it sound as if just because you're a homosexual, you're going to uh, automatically uh, go to hell. You can't get saved. This is not doesn't have anything to do with the Bible. We've had pa- passages before, lessons before, on the passages involved there. The issue is that this is a sin that strikes at part of the very core of a successful society. It attacks the divine institution of marriage. And when that institution crumbles, the family crumbles, and future generations suffer so that a society will implode as this these cancers eat away internally at, at a society. So, and in one sense, homosexuality is no different from any other sin. It's no different from uh, adultery, it's no different from fornication, lying, perjury, uh, murder, all of these other things. If they are allowed to have legal, be given legal status, then what happens is a culture will uh, degenerate and completely collapse. So we, on the one hand, we shouldn't look at homosexuality as some sort of special category of sin, but we must recognize that if a country, if a culture, if a nation allows slander to go unpunished, Allows libel to go unpunished, allows murder to go unpunished, uh, allows all of these other things to go unpunished, that would be the same thing. It is self destructive. And so we have to understand it from that perspective. Uh, marriage is the third, I mean, family is the third divine institution, for family is the core education system for providing for the next generation for passing values on from one generation uh, to the next. Now, these were all in place before Adam sinned, before there was the fall, before there's the curse of sin. Then you go through the period of the early parts of Genesis, the first uh, dispensation under um, uh, what we usually refer to as human conscience up to an, immediately after the flood. And then after the flood, you have the development of the fourth uh, divine institution, which is human government or civil government, the judicial aspect, and individual nations, and so these come along after sin enters into uh, human history. The purpose of the first three, the pre-fall divine institutions, are is to the purpose is to promote productivity advance civilization so that man can experience all of God's uh, blessing in his society, in his social structure. The post-fall divine institutions are designed to restrain and inhibit evil, which would destroy productivity and destroy prosperity. So human government and nations are designed to protect the human race from evil, uh, from tyranny, but unfortunately living in a fallen world where these institutions are under the uh, direction of fallen human beings, human government is often perverted to do just the opposite of what it was intended uh, to do. But nevertheless, it is an institution that has been established by God. So point number 3, the problem that we run into as Christians is when the authority of civil government conflicts with the mandates and the responsibilities that are assigned to us by God. This is the the major problem when the government mandates something that specifically and directly contradicts what the Bible directs us to do, and so we have to understand how we are to respond and what our attitude should be toward civil government. And so this morning we're going to look briefly at both Romans thirteen as well as first corinthians first uh, corinthians chapter I mean First Peter chapter two. Now, Romans 13, I want to give you, start with just an overview. We, I couldn't get the, all the verses on one slide, but we have two slides, and I just want to point out some things and the structure there in terms of, of Paul's, uh, Paul's particular uh, thinking. Now, first, let's get a little background on the epistle to the Romans. Uh, the, this is written by Paul. Some say it may be as early as 54 A.D. This would be the same time that Nero begins to, uh, reign as, as emperor, the last in the line, uh, from, uh, from Augustus. And, uh, Rome is the capital of the empire and it is the seat of much that is going on in in government and there were a lot, was a lot of turmoil at that particular at that particular time as nero came to the throne in fact one of the major issues that was in contention was taxes taxes from the roman empire at that time were extremely heavy extremely onerous and the people were tired of being taxed all the time uh, by the uh, by the government. The Roman historian Suetonius, as well as Tacitus, uh, spent a lot of time talking about the heavy tax burden that was imposed by the government during this time. See, things don't change. One of the problems that you always have with governments is that when they begin to deify themselves, which seems to be the trend of every government from the ancient world to the present, then they have to start uh, supporting themselves in a manner that, uh, uh, that gods should have. And so, as, since the government views itself as a god, it's, views the, uh, the means of productivity within the country as being theirs. It views the money that the citizens have as being theirs and not something that is, uh, earned by the individual citizen. So, uh, there were a lot of problems in Rome, not only in terms of the heavy taxation, but also the methods that the tax collectors have. Now, we don't have anything like this that I know of, although some of you may have different stories if you've gone in for an audit with the IRS. But the uh, tax collectors in the Roman Empire were nothing short of being extortioners. And so this was a, um, a terrible situation for anyone in the Roman Empire. Not only that, but they did the same thing then that we do now, is they don't want to call taxes taxes. So you had overt taxes, but then you also had a lot of hidden taxes. And we have all kinds of taxes today, and the government always plays fast and loose with the term tax, trying to make you refer to only income tax when you have all kinds of other licenses and fees and permits and all of these other things that are just uh, taxes by another name. Uh, we have building taxes and permit taxes. We have cap and trade taxes on the horizon. We have cigarette taxes. We have corporate income tax. We have, uh, dog license taxes and Cat license taxes and excise taxes and a federal income tax, we also have a federal unemployment tax. You have a fishing license tax and a hunting license tax. You have food license tax if you're in the restaurant business. You have a fuel permit tax if you are a gas station. you have to pay a gasoline tax if you go to uh, fill up your car. We have gross receipts taxes hun- uh, inheritance taxes inventory taxes, IRS uh, interest charges, which are quite fun if you've had to go that route. You have uh, liquor taxes and luxury taxes, and a, when you get married, you have to pay a tax in order to get your marriage license. You have a Medicare tax and a personal property tax. You have real estate taxes, and you have service uh, charges on various things. They're just other forms of taxes. You have Social Security tax, road usage tax. You have all kinds of sales taxes, local sales tax, state sales tax, federal sales tax. Uh, School taxes, state income tax, state unemployment tax, surcharge taxes, which is going to hit the uh, those who are considered by this administration wealthy so they can pay for the health care of all of the illegal illegals that come into the country. Telephone taxes, and those are a lot of fun. Just take out your cell phone bill and your telephone bill sometime and just look at all the taxes that you're paying each time you text somebody or make a telephone call. Uh, you have uh, telephone minimum usage surcharge taxes and telephone recurring and non-recurring charges. You have... Um, uh, utility taxes, value-added taxes are being talked about. Uh, we have vehicle license registration taxes, uh, vehicle sales taxes. We have watercraft registration taxes, uh, well permit taxes, worker compensation tax. We have all kinds of taxes that are hit with everyone. In fact, if, if even half of those taxes were in effect in 1776, they would have been fighting five years earlier. Sometimes taxes get so large that we can't even fathom what the numbers are. We're hearing these numbers now of it's gonna cost one and a half to four trillion dollars to fund this new health care plan and then the taxes that will be taken for that. I don't I can't even come up with uh fathom uh what a trillion is. So let's, let's stick with a more manage, manageable number like a billion. A billion now what what a trillion is a thousand Billion. A billion seconds ago, it was 1978. A billion minutes ago, Jesus was alive. God created the Earth around 3.2 billion minutes ago. Now we're talking deficits in the trillions. So just see, we we, it, it gets so abstract that okay, let's just funny money, monopoly money. A billion dollars ago was only about four hours ago, I think. In the last four or five hours, I can't even figure this out, the deficits mushroomed so much in just the last couple of years, but uh, the government has probably spent close to a billion dollars since we woke up this morning, or at least since I woke up this morning. I woke up earlier than most of you probably. So that just puts it into perspective, and yet it is the citizen who is expected to pay all of this. And there have been problems with taxes and tax revolts for as long as there have been governments and as long as there have been, been taxes. Now, the Scripture clearly teaches both in this passage and in uh, the Gospels that taxes are legitimate. But, there are onerous taxes. there are taxes that should not be, and in this nation, of course, we have the right uh, to protest uh, taxes. But if you don't pay your taxes, then you have uh, you're violating clearly violating the word of God because the Bible clearly mandates the payment of taxes. But you do have the right of protest at least in in our nation now, Romans chapter thirteen is really focused on the problem. Of taxes. Paul is going to start with the principle in the first verse let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. But the specific application that he is going to make is going to be in taxes. In the next slide, if you look down in verse 7, uh, verse 6, he brings it up the first time, For because of this you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render therefore to all their due taxes to whom taxes are due. So the word of God does not authorize uh, disobedience to taxes in principle. That we are to obey the law, even when those taxes are honored, so that is one of the reasons Paul includes this section in Romans. Some have wondered why, in the world, all of a sudden, we have this section on government in Romans chapter thirteen. it looks doesn 't really look as if it uh, is in the right place it somehow uh, Paul got a little bit uh, confused or he just jumped into another uh, subject without laying. Uh, the proper uh, proper groundwork. Uh, let me see here. I'm gonna... Okay. But the con- Romans 13 fits the context of what Paul began in Romans chapter 12. In Romans 12:1 we read, "I beseech you therefore, brethren." by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Romans 12 is the major dividing section in the book of Romans. Through Romans 11, we have more of a doctrinal discourse, a theological discourse, unpacking what God has done in our salvation in order to satisfy his righteousness, to provide us with righteousness, that we may live a righteous life. Starting in chapter 12, Paul is going to describe what that righteous life should look like. And that righteous life is a life that is in submission to God's authority, that is a key word that we find, our key concept we find running through this section, we are to be subordinate to the authority of God. And so Romans 12, 1 and 2 sets the theme for the section, and Romans chapter 13 is going to address the how the believer is going to relate to government in a way that, honors and glorifies God as part of our service to God one of the things that is important here is that in much of history there's been the sort of a mystical approach to religion so that the worship of God or the gods is somehow in this sphere over here and the everyday day-to-day routines is in another sphere over here we particularly see that kind of a dichotomy set up in uh, the thinking in our modern world that somehow uh, religion and what you do at church on Sunday and reading the Bible doesn't have anything to do with the real nuts and bolts of what we do during the week, doesn't have anything to do with uh, uh, being an IT person, doesn't have anything to do with setting up a web space, or it doesn't have anything to do with being a legislator, at least that's what Senator Kennedy believes. Um, you never allow religious beliefs to have any impact on what you do in your day-to-day life. These things are kept completely separate. But what we see in the Bible is that these are completely integrated. Your relationship to God, your spiritual life, cannot be separated from how you think about your business, how you think about uh, the things you do around the house, how you think about your responsibilities, whether they're the responsibilities at work, your responsibilities as a citizen, or your responsibilities at home. These are completely and totally integrated uh, together. And so under the overall theme of being subordinate to God and living a life that is uh pleasing to him, demonstrating that his will is good, acceptable and perfect, it has a particular application in the role or the relationship of the believer to uh to government. And so we see this theme developed in Romans um uh, thirteen in various ways we see the words such as evil and good are found in both the latter part of Romans twelve, Romans twelve seventeen and twenty-one, as well as in Romans thirteen three and four. In Romans twelve seventeen we read, Repay no one evil for evil have regard for good things, that is that which has intrinsic good in the sight of all men. In other words, we live our lives out as as visible testimonies uh, before others. In Romans chapter uh, 13, verses 3 and 4, we're told that the rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of that authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. So these concepts r- run through both chapters. Another thing we note is that the idea of wrath, which is an expression of God's uh, judicial condemnation of of unrighteousness is mentioned in both 12.19 and 13.4 and 5. Wrath is not a term meaning that someone has lost their temper or somebody is simply angry. Uh, it is a figure of speech for the harshness of justice and the c- condemnation uh, from the uh, judge of any kind of violation of law and it's very clear from this passage that it's talking about the judgment coming from a judge because uh, that it's not emotion because nobody wants an emotional judge we uh, except maybe the president we want to have a judge that has objectivity and understands understands the law we don't want somebody who has empathy or someone who thinks that uh that they can judge better because they're a certain sex or a certain race. Uh, what's required is that they are objective and that they understand the law, and in a dispassionate way, which means non-emotional, they are able then to apply the law to different uh, situations in order to execute uh, justice. And so uh, wrath is mentioned in both sections, so that ties them together. And then we also have another connection in the concept of vengeance. Vengeance appears in 1219 as well as in 134. Now if you look at 1219, Paul says, behold, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. Now if you want to, if you're going to understand that like in terms of a Modern, contemporary meaning of the word wrath—it would be don't don't get get involved in a vendetta, but give place to your anger. That would be meaningless. See, so if you understand wrath correctly, you understand that it's the execution of justice. It says, do not avenge yourselves, meaning that the idea of vengeance is there is close to what most people think of when they hear the term. Uh, vengeance in terms of getting personal retribution apart from the uh, court system. Uh, Vengeance is a word that is often mistakenly understood, and actually the dictionaries don't give you a a lot of help. They can confuse you as well. We often think that vengeance means to take uh, matters into our own hands and to get our own form of justice. However, the basic meaning of the English word According to uh, Webster's uh, 13th edition, s- states that it is punishment inflicted in retaliation for an offense. It doesn't say anything about who's doing it. It's just punishment that is inflicted in retaliation for an offense. Now, some dictionaries, like the Collins 21st century edition, states that it is the act or desire for taking revenge, so they're going to slant the word more towards a personal uh, vendetta, personal vengeance, whereas Webster's Dictionary states that it is more along the lines of simply punishment, and it's, there's a difference between vengeance and uh, the verb to uh, avenge or a vendetta or something like that. In the Greek, we have the word, the word is ekdikasis, ekdikasis, and you can see that on the screen, and if you can see it, there's a little bit of, too much of a glare on this one screen, but I have highlighted the root word decay in the middle of that Greek word. Decay is the root word for righteousness, dikaio, the verb for to be justified, dikaio, Dekios, justification. These concepts come out of that same root word. The Hebrew word is uh, for that's translated vengeance is the word nakam, which is the word used in the Old Testament source of this quote, Deuteronomy thirty two thirty five, vengeance is mine and recompense. And so the Lord says that vengeance is his. Now this is important I first learned this as a seventh grader. I wrote a paper we just had I'd had a good Sunday school teacher and we had learned about capital punishment in my Sunday school class. And we were to write an essay in seventh grade English. And so I wrote an essay on uh, the necessity of capital punishment. And my um, English teacher scribbled across the front page. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Now, she's misquoting that passage. Because the passage is stating clearly that God is the ultimate source of justice, but if we see in that very passage that God has delegated that judicial authority uh, to man, but the idea of vengeance is the idea of uh, pers- of punishment for wrongdoing. It is a judicial term. It is not a term of personal. Uh, vindictiveness, or carrying out a personal vendetta. So God, when when God says vengeance is mine, the idea of vengeance is bringing punishment to bear on those who are wrong uh, wrongdoers. And so it is ultimately God who will rectify all things, but that in the process he has delegated that authority to man. So let's go back just work our way briefly through uh Romans 13. The basic command is Romans 13:1 let every soul be subject or be subordinate to or be submissive to uh governing authorities. Actually the word authority is not in the uh probably not in the original just the the government. And then he gives an explanation. Now the way I've set that up on the slide is to indent uh, the second part of verse one and verse two, one level, because they that those two verses are related to the first level of explanation in verse one. Verses three and four follow a four clause in each case, and they are related to the explanation of verse two. Then we come back to Romans thirteen five, and we have another main statement. Therefore, you must be subject. Same idea. It's the second time Paul states it. You have to be subordinate, submissive to government. And then he explains it again in terms of taxes in verse 6. And then in verse 7, he again uh, makes an application in terms of a, of a imperative, render therefore to all their due. Those three verses, verse 1, verse 5, verse 7, give you the essence of this particular of this particular passage. So the basic command is to let every soul be subordinate to, be subject to government authorities. Well, what if the government's out of line? Notice there's no if clause. There's no condition there. Now, when Paul wrote this, uh, it was during the time when Nero, one of the most evil tyrants of the Roman Empire, was the emperor. But it was written during the very beginning of Nero's, uh, reign. In fact, the first half of Nero's reign, he was considered a very benevolent uh, emperor. And it was during that time that Paul wrote this. But it's not written in relation to whether the emperor is good or bad. It is written in terms of the universal absolute principle that all authority comes from God. And that's the explanation. Uh, following the word for, he explains this. There's no authority except from God. Ultimately, all authority comes from God. The Greek preposition there, hupa, from God, indicates the ultimate source, uh, the agent of the action. So God is the one who establishes authority. Authority is in the Godhead. And he goes on to say that an authorities that exist are appointed by God. Whether they are tyrants or not, this is one of the most difficult concepts that people have had to deal with over the ages, is what happens if it's a a terrible government? What happens if it's an evil government? Well, there is no exception stated here. It's just the universal principle that there's no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God, and then there's an application, therefore, Whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. Now, I've color-coded the word resist the same because it's repeated three times in the Greek, which emphasizes this, that if you are standing against the the authority, and it's the established authority, the, the, the idea here is not, well, is it a legitimate government or not? If it's the government, it's the government, whether you think it's legit or not. It's the government, it's the authority, so it's a, dealing with it as de facto rather than du jour. That means it's dealing with the fact of the, who's in authority, not dealing with whether or not it is, uh, it is legitimate. Now, what happens if you resist government? It will bring judgment on yourself. This isn't talking about divine judgment. It's talking about the consequences of violating the law. Second half, the last part of the verse. you will bring judgment on themselves. Verses 3 and 4 explain that. Rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. That is, if you violate the law, you will suffer the consequences from the rulers. So do you want to be unafraid of authority? Then do what is good, and you will have praise for the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. That is the role of the authority of government. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. See, that's the temporal consequence of violating the authority of government then in verse 5, Paul comes back and says, Therefore you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. In other words, not just because there's a negative motivation, avoiding punishment, but also a positive motivation, your conscience, because this pleases God. And so then there's the explanation and application in verse 6. Because of this, you also pay taxes, whether you think they're legitimate, onerous, or not. Uh, you still are under the law and must pay taxes. For they that is the authority uh, are God's ministers, attending continually to this very thing. And this would apply even to the evil extortionist uh, IRS agents at the coming out of the Roman Empire. So there's no he leaves no wiggle room to avoid or get out from under the uh, illegitimate hostile. Violent f- forms of uh, opposition that could come from the tax collectors in the empire. And he concludes, render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs are due, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. Now, who is honor due? In the scripture, honor is due the king. Honor is due the king. And so, uh, we find this again in Romans, I mean in 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2. Let's turn there and we'll conclude fairly quickly because Peter repeats the same thing that, that Paul said. He begins in 1 Peter 2.13, Therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. Not because they're right, but because ultimately it's a delegated authority that's not determined by the character of the person in the office, but the office itself. So he uses the same word for submit that Paul used for submit in Romans 13.1. Submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme, the ultimate authority, to governors, that is the secondary tertiary levels of authority, or for those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do do good. Verse 15, for this is the will of God. It can't be stated more clearly. This is the will of God that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. As free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. And then concludes, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. In conclusion, what we have seen In our study of these various passages are a couple of important, a couple of important principles. First of all, what we see is that the validity of authority is not based on how someone uses that authority. They may use it wrongly, but we have to respect the office they hold, whether it's father, husband, teacher, Uh, commanding officer, coach, or president, we have to respect the office, not necessarily the person in the office. Even unjust government, kings operating as law unto themselves as in the case of Saul, hold an office of authority that is established by God and therefore they should be obeyed. Second thing we see is the use of authorities in Romans 13 indicates any authority whether just or unjust, tyrant or not. It is, according to Paul's terminology, the existing government, using the uh, uh, verb to be, it is the existing government that is ordained of God. He is specifically applying it to the government of Rome. Third, none of the passages that mandate obedience and submission qualify those commands with phrases such as if they're just, if they uh, conform to uh, your beliefs, uh, if they are biblical, uh, the passages com- uh, command uh, unqualified obedience to authority. However, there are exceptions, and those exceptions are what we've seen in the past. When the governing authority dictates commands, something specific of an individual that is sp- 180 degrees opposite from what God has specifically and directly stated. For example, when the government mandates a certain kind of worship that violates God's word, such as in Daniel chapter 3, when government commands believers to kill, take innocent life, Exodus chapter 1 with the midwives, when government commands that uh, prophets of God are to be killed, First Kings eighteen one through 4, then the believer has the right to disobey that command. When it commands uh, believers to worship idols, uh, such as in Daniel chapter 3, then the believer has the right to disobey government. Uh, when the government commands believers to pray to a man or to a false god, then we have the right to disobey government. When the government prohibits believers from uh, propagating the gospel, teaching the word, then we have the right to disobey. However, the Bible places limits on how the individual believer can disobey government. First of all, a believer may refuse to obey a law, but he may do it in, gra- must do it in grace and humility. If we get involved in arrogance and antagonism at the time that we are disobeying that law, then we have destroyed our witness at that time. If you look at all of the examples in scripture, they're all done in grace and humility, not in revolt and insubordination. Disobedience in all of these passages is passive, not active. Second thing we see is that the believer should be willing to take the consequences. Whatever happens for his disobedience, he's going to trust in God for ultimate justice. And then third, the believer must not forget his primary mission, which is to be a witness in the angelic conflict and a witness to unbelievers and to uh, proclaim the gospel to those in need of eternal life. That is our mission. Our mission is not to overturn governments. Our mission is not to straighten out the political systems of the world. Our mission is to be a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ and the veracity of God's word. Let's bow our heads together and close in prayer. Father, we're thankful that we have such clear instruction from your word, as difficult as it is at times, to obey these uh, various commands to be submissive to those in authority over us, whether it's parents, whether it's a husband, or whether it is um, a coach or military commander or a political leader, it is often difficult for us to submit to their leadership when we disagree with them. Yet it demands humility and grace orientation, and thus by doing that, we grow in our own understanding of grace and our own humility. Father, it was the Lord Jesus Christ who humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. He humbled himself by being obedient, obedient to the unjust authorities, the illegal actions carried out by the Sanhedrin and carried out by Roman authorities. And it is on the basis of his obedience by going to the cross that he secured for us our salvation. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal life, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He paid the penalty on that cross for the sin of the world so that by simply trusting in him, believing that he is your substitute and that he paid your sin penalty, you have eternal life that can never be taken from you. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied this morning, and we pray this in Christ's name, amen.